Jesus would become more real to you. That Jesus would become more real to you. That, that Jesus wouldn't be just a Sunday morning experience. That we come in here and we sing these songs and we feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And man, that's awesome. That, that Jesus wouldn't just be an experience that you have uh, in your small group or in your Bible study. But, but that Jesus would become more real to you in a sense that, man, he permeates every single area of your life. That, that he is notice, noticeable in your life with your family and your coworkers and people that you're around. That Jesus just permeates your life. People you come in contact would, would notice a radical change in your life because of your encounter with Jesus. That, that's my hope and prayer for us through this series over the next six weeks. Uh, so John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John. Uh, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. Let me, uh, let me share with you just a little bit about John. Uh, John, the writer of the Gospel, is one of the original 12 disciples that walked around with Jesus for three and a half years. John lived to be a very old man. Uh, some believe that he would have been in his early 90s when he wrote the book of Revelation, uh, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And a lot of people believe that he was probably the only disciple uh, who was not martyred for his faith, that he died an old man. John also is the author of First, Second, and Third John in the New Testament, there right before Revelation. And John had a brother named James, who was also one of the original 12 disciples. Now, you may remember them if you're, uh, because they were, they were, Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of thunder. And they had a father whose name was Zebedee. And if you remember, they were, they were fishing with their father, and Jesus came and he called them, and uh, they, they left their father, they left their nets, and they followed Jesus, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And uh, so Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Uh, James, uh, his brother, you might, might know this as well, that in Acts chapter 12, James is the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for his faith. You see that in the very first opening verses of Acts chapter 12, uh, King Herod put James to death, and he was the first uh, disciple of Jesus, uh, of the 12, that was martyred for his faith. Now, one of the things that is most famous, that, that John is most famous for, or that he's most known for, is uh, the... That throughout his gospel, he doesn't refer to himself as John. Right? John. John doesn't refer to himself as John, but rather he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. He refers to himself as a, as a disciple that Jesus loved. And so every time you read through the gospel of John and you see that phrase, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved, John is referring to himself. Now, now referring to yourself as a disciple that Jesus loved may seem a bit arrogant at first. You may be thinking... Like, who in the world can claim to be the disciple that Jesus loved? And if we don't understand love, it is arrogant. But when you begin to understand love, you see just how welcoming it is. For instance, when we had Jude, our, our oldest son, we loved him very much. And when he came into this world, he was our firstborn. It was hard to imagine that we could love anybody any more than when we loved Jude. Like, he was our firstborn. He was our beloved child. Then came along Shepherd, our youngest, and we realized that we love him very much. And when Shepherd came along, our love for Jude didn't diminish. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to love Jude 50, and I'm going to love Shepherd 50. It wasn't 50-50, but we loved them both equally. 
both Jude and Shepherd are our beloved children. That's the nature of love. It's exponential multiplication. Right? And so John says that he is the beloved of Jesus, and that is good news for us because if we have believed and placed our faith in the resurrected Jesus and what he did on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, we too are the beloved children of God. Isn't that good news? That excites me. We don't have to guess what John's purpose in writing his gospel is because he plainly spells it out. His purpose for writing is in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, I chose particular stories and I chose particular signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John said that you may believe. John's gospel is unique in that he presents Jesus as the great creator, God of the universe. His desire is to show people that Jesus is real, that he is engaging, and that you can experience him in a life-changing way. He opens up uh, the very first few verses of, of his first John, right, later on, and he says, this is Jesus who we have seen, who we have touched, who we have ate with, who we, he, he's real, he's real to us, he's not some disengaged person, but he's engaging, and you can experience him in a life-changing way. He wants us to see that Jesus is bigger than we could ever imagine or fathom, and that every day we would grow deeper and deeper in the gospel, and every day that Christ would be bigger and bigger than the day before. I love how one commentator compared, uh, compared this to a scene from the famous book or movie, if you've seen the movie, from C.S. Lewis. How many of you guys have seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Right? Isn't that an awesome movie? Most everybody here has seen that movie, so you're going you're gonna to know this reference. But, but Lucy, the youngest of, of the four siblings, uh, she, she's the first one to kind of discover this secret wardrobe, right? And this wardrobe, at least, to the land of Narnia. And in this, this one scene in the movie where she, she's, uh, she's a little older and she, she, she sees Aslan, and Aslan is the, the Christ symbol in the Chronicles of Narnia. And after some time has passed, she, she gazes into his large, wise face. And Lucy says to Aslan, you are bigger. And Aslan replies, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are, Lucy asks. I am not, says Aslan, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And listen, that is how it is with God. The more we grow deeper and deeper into the gospel, the more that we grow in our awareness of God's holiness and of our flesh and sinfulness, as we read the Bible, as we experience the Holy Spirit uh, in his conviction and live in community with other people, the extent of God's greatness and the extent of my sin become increasingly clear and vivid. It's not that God is becoming more holy or that I am becoming more sinful, but my awareness of both is growing. I am increasingly seeing God as he actually is and myself as I actually am. And therefore, God is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The cross is getting bigger. Man, that's our hope and prayer that over the next six weeks we will find that Christ is bigger and bigger and bigger. And so today, with, uh, so with great care, John writes about this uniqueness and greatness of Jesus. And as we read through these first 14 verses, 
I want to simply point out three things to you. I told Robin earlier this week, I said, this sermon kind of takes me back to my, my, uh, my, my homiletics. Homiletics is like a preaching class that you take in school. And, in, and they teach you to do like three-point sermons, you know what I mean? Now, I'm not a big fan of three-point sermons. If you guys know, I, I kind, of, kind of do it a little differently. And, uh, but today is three-point sermons, so you're going to have three points that you can write down. So you guys excited about that? You guys got your pens out ready to do this? All right. And I'm going to give you three points today. This is very rare for me. All right, so here it is. The first, uh, the three points, I'm going to give you all to them right now, and then we'll kind of walk through them. But the first thing I want you to see today is the greatness of Jesus. The greatness of Jesus. The second thing that I want you to see today is the greatness of Jesus' love. The greatness of Jesus' love. And then the third and final thing that we're going to, share, that we're going to kind of explore today is the greatness of his gospel. The greatness of his gospel, the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus' love, and the greatness of his gospel. All right, so you guys good? You guys ready? All right, so in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through the first three verses, and this is what it says. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the first three verses are about the beginning of creation of all things. In the beginning, those, those words echo the opening verses of the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word here refers to Jesus, and John is telling us that as creator, God Jesus Christ was pre-existent with the Father. He didn't become the Son of God either at his birth in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph or any time during his earthly life, but he was and is the eternal Son, co-existent and co-eternal with the Father. John's point is that because Jesus is God and was with God from the beginning, he has, he has no genealogy. He was, he was always existent, always there. Now, if you're like me, trying to wrap your, your, your brain around this concept makes for a super gigantic headache, right? You sit there and you try to think about this, this idea that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they all existed before time. Like, you know, our brains, we're, we're wired to, to, to know time. Like, we, everything is based on time, a start and a beginning. Our minds look backward until time disappears and thought collapses. For instance, the earliest memories that I have of my childhood or of when I was about three. Like, I can remember all the way back some memories when I was three years old. Like, I can look at pictures, and, and I can say, I remember this, Mom. How old was I? And she says, you were about three. And that's about, that's about as far back as I can go. It's just a few memories. So for, so for me, it's hard to imagine what life was like prior to 1980. Like, 1980 is as far back as I can go. Because you and I have a beginning and an end. Our minds are finite. We don't understand how something could always be, and that's the point. Jesus existed before time. He is God and was with God from the beginning. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Then in verse 3, John says, All things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
Revelation 4, 11, John writes this. He says, Worthy are you, we sang about it this morning, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, so again, let's try to wrap our, our, our finite brains around this, this concept, this thought. There, there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Like, that just blows my mind, just that alone, right? I'm sitting here trying to have that's just hard to believe. Now, Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. So what that means is that there is probably something like 10 octillion stars. And I don't even know what that is. Like, octillion, I don't even have a clue. What, like, it, 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 gave the, it gave the zeros, and it was too many zeros to count. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And yet Jesus created them all. Every single one of them, Jesus created them. Man. Jesus created the inner universe of the atom. And he holds the atom and its inner and outer universe together. And everything was created to bring him glory. Listen, everything that was created points back to our creator. To give him glory. Everything points to him. That's why the opening line of our purpose statement here at Chester Christian Church is to, to what? To make much of Jesus. This is why. This is why when you study the whole scope of Scripture, man, the whole Bible, everything points to him. Everything is about Jesus. Everything points to him. That's why here we make much of Jesus. It's all about him. John says, in the beginning was the word. And because Jesus is the word and the word Jesus was with God, the word is powerful. The word is powerful. Man, the word is powerful. We know the power of words, don't we? Like, we know the power of words. Listen, I, I remember with clarity the words of an angry neighbor who unleashed damaging words into a little 10-year-old boy. I, I can, Robin was asking me about this this week, and, and I said, yeah, I remember, like it was yesterday. I remember standing there in the front porch, and this neighbor comes out of his house, and and starts unleashing those words. And I can remember as a 10-year-old boy walking across the street back to my house with my head down and just really hurt, hurt, hurt by those words. I remember, I remember those words with clarity. I remember the words of a guy named Jason Kirkman who spoke words of encouragement to me when I was 20. When he said he saw God working in my life and affirming God's call to ministry on my life. I remember exactly where we were. We were at a Mexican restaurant, huh? We were sitting there, and I can remember, man, I was sitting there, I was pouring out my heart, and him and his wife, Jason, and his wife, Stacy, were sitting there, and they were just, the words were so powerful, I can remember them with clarity. Our words have power. Our words have power. I know the power of words with my son, Jude. As I, as I look at him and I tell him, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. And when I tell him that, he leans into my chest. I can see the power of those words. It changes him. It changes him. Man. I see the power of words when I stand up here and I, I get to share about the greatness of Jesus and his grace is unleashed upon you and your life radically changes because of his great love for you. I mean, these, these are the power of words. Words have the power to, to manipulate, to tear down, to build up. And they are more powerful than any weapon. 
You know that old saying they used to say in, in grade school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember that? That's, that's garbage. Right? That's, that's, that's baloney. Right? Words, words hurt. Words hurt. Now, now, if this is the power of our words and we are not all-knowing and we are not all-wise and we are not all-powerful, how much more power does the Word of God have? If what John is saying is true, if Jesus is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-knowing, imagine the immense force of the words that He speaks. Right In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God's words are always effective. They do exactly what He meant for them to do, and they create out of nothingness. God said, let there be, and it was. Like God spoke the world into existence. God spoke and life was created for, for how many ever years ago it was for you. God spoke into to your mother's womb and you were created and woven together by his word. How powerful is that? And don't you believe that if God spoke and created in that moment that he is speaking today and creating in your life right now? Don't you believe that? I mean, would we be able to finally come to a place where we can trust the powerful Word of God to create for you and me? I tell you, man, I know that many of you may be struggling with depression. Many of you may be struggling with some type of sickness or struggling in marriage or you may be struggling with anger. And you may be sitting here today feeling hopelessness. But God wants to speak hope into your hopeless situation this morning. If you've ever been in a place where you feel underwater or overwhelmed, like you just, you can't get above water, like you just need a break, Jesus wants to speak hope into your life this morning. If you're here this morning and and you feel like there is no way that God could ever love you or forgive you because of your past, man, there's just no way that God could love me because of what I've done, I've done this, I'm poor, just, man, I'm telling you that let Jesus speak into your life this morning. The word is so powerful, it has the ability to heal. Psalm 107.20 says that he sent forth his word and it healed them. We are all in need of healing. Jesus is the word, and with the arrival of the word, Jesus is our healing. Amen? That's the greatness of Jesus. That's the greatness of Jesus. And then John moves on to show us, second point, the greatness of Jesus' love. The greatness of Jesus' love, all right? And so verses 4, we're going to read through down to, to verse 14 here. This is what it says. In him was life, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
The Bible oftentimes contrasts light and darkness. Again, if you, if you go back to the book of Genesis, and it kind of opens up with a focus on darkness and light. Before God spoke light into existence, the Bible says the earth was without form and void, and darkness spread across the face of the deep. It was into this world of darkness that God spoke the very first words, let there be light. So there was light before there was the sun or moon or stars because God is the source of this light. His glory shines and illumines and gives light and life. And that's what John is saying in these opening verses, that Jesus is the light that came into the world to push back the darkness. Light is used in Scripture metaphorically to symbolize righteousness and holiness and purity and blamelessness. And darkness is used metaphorically in Scripture with evil and wickedness. And Jesus, He is the light. And the light came into the world, penetrating every corner of our hearts of darkness through the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 says, The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin. The word convicts means to convince someone of the truth. See, the Holy Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney who exposes evil and convinces people they need Jesus. To be convicted is to feel disgust over our sin. Now, now the Bible says that every single person has fallen short of God's glory and that we have all turned away from God, that there is no one who is righteous, that there is no one who does good, not one person. We have all sinned and rebelled against God. And because of sin, our dirty hearts, we have turned away from the light. See, people hide in the darkness. People do evil things in the darkness. And the light comes in and exposes the wickedness. There's nothing we can do to fix our sin problem. We aren't good enough. We can't obey enough. We can't do enough good things. There's not enough righteousness in us to, to, to earn God's favor. We can't try to live a morally clean life. There's nothing we can do. And yet John tells us that there are people who have, who have and will continually reject the light that has come into the world. The Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, in the first chapter of Romans, tells us that the light's enlightenment is far-reaching.